Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash VVJ. This program is supported by an independent medical education grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals. Welcome to this Peer Voice activity on sinusoidal obstruction syndrome, veno-occlusive disease. This activity comprises a series of four streaming episodes with Professor Mohamed Moti. Hi, I'm Mohamed Moti from the Sorbonne University and St. Antoine Hospital in Paris in France. Welcome to this activity on early and effective recognition and management of patients with veno-occlusive disease or VOD. VOD, also known as sinusoidal obstruction syndrome or SOS, is a life-threatening complication associated with allogenic or autologous hematopoietic stem cell transplant or even high-dose non-transplant chemotherapy. The incidence of VOD is quite variable. It can go from 5 to 15% in adults, depending on the risk factors for a given patient, and it's usually higher in the pediatric population, between 20 and 60%, depending on the underlying conditioning. The severity of VOD varies widely from a mild form to a severe syndrome with multi-organ dysfunction or multi-organ failure and a mortality rate above 80% if appropriate treatment is not started rapidly. The pathophysiology of this complication is little known. However, we know that insult by the chemotherapy and radiotherapy can result in the production of toxic metabolites by the hepatocytes in the liver, which triggers the activation damage, and inflammation of the endothelial cells that line the sinusoids. VOD can develop rapidly and unpredictably, and it's important to identify risk factors to facilitate prompt diagnosis and begin treatment. These risk factors can be transplant or patient, but also disease-related. Transplant-related risk factors include the toxicity of chemotherapy or the conditioning regimen, allogenic versus auto-transplant, or even the immunosuppressive regimen you're going to use. Patient and disease-related factors include patient age, performance status, underlying disease, genetic predisposition, uh, but also, in general, the health status of the liver. For instance, an immature liver function in infants, iron overload, liver fibrosis, hepatitis, etc. We can also have... uh, platelet refractoriness, uh, metabolic syndrome, disease status, but in some cases also specific diseases like thalassemia. Also, we have to acknowledge that there are several drugs, especially the combination of alkylating agents that are among the risk factors of VOD. The diagnostic criteria of VOD are rather complex and include elevated bilirubin, the presence of ascites, unexpected weight gain, hepatomegaly for age or increased liver size compared to pre-transplant, but also the famous right upper quadrant pain. And putting all this together has led to the development of the so-called modified Seattle criteria, the Baltimore criteria, and more recently, the EBMT criteria which distinguish classical VOD occurring in the first 21 days after transplant versus late-onset VOD beyond day 21 after transplant. 
And once the diagnosis is suspected, it is extremely important to perform a grading of the severity. The EBMT severity criteria are relatively easy to use and they rely on the clinical presentation of VOD. It's divided into mild, moderate, severe, or very severe categories. And patients are usually classified in the category where they fulfill at least more than two criteria. Another important feature, if patients fulfill more than two criteria across two adjacent categories, they must be classified in the most severe category because these severity criteria also consider risk factors. In other words, the presence of two or more risk factors would upgrade the severity status. Now, regarding treatment of SOS or VOD, it consists of supportive care and in addition to therapy with defibrotide, that is currently the only approved drug for treating severe VOD. We have to pay attention to close monitoring of fluid and sodium balance and renal function as well as the use of diuretics, the management of ascites, and the transfer of these patients to the intensive care unit, especially if they have multi-organ dysfunction or failure. But of course, prevention is always better than cure. There are non-pharmacologic measures which are related to the choice of conditioning regimen, minimization whenever possible of some risk factors, but also some pharmacologic measures such as ursodeoxolic acid that has been an important tool to prevent VOD. For the time being, when it comes to defibrotide, we have a randomized phase 3 trial showing its efficacy in preventing uh, VOD in the pediatric population. Based on this, I'd like to ask you the following challenge question. Thank you for your attention and please stay tuned for the next episode. Hi, I'm Mohamed Moti from the Sorbonne University and St. Antoine Hospital in Paris in France. In this episode, I'd like to present a patient case that we will follow throughout the program to understand the risk factors, the appearance and the evolution of symptoms, severity grading, diagnosis and treatment of hepatic VOD. In this episode, we will focus on the risk factors. This is about a 40-year-old female patient with no prior medical history and no comorbidities. She was diagnosed with stage 3AB Hodgkin disease in February 2010. The initial treatment consisted of the classical ABVD, but also she got abdominal irradiation. In April 2014, four years later, unfortunately we've seen an aggressive relapse with disseminated disease treated with three different lines of chemotherapy. Unfortunately, the patient was still in refractory disease in March 2015. She received salvage treatment with two cycles of brintuximab, which allowed the achievement of complete remission in June 2015. Given the high-risk disease, an allogenic transplant from her HLA identical sister was decided. And given, of course, the heavy treatments she had during the course of her disease, she received a reduced-intensity conditioning regimen consisting of fludarabin, IV busulfan, and ATG. GVG prophylaxis relayed on cyclosporin alone, and we used 
peripheral blood stem cells mobilized with GCSF. She also received ursodeoxolic acid for VOD prophylaxis and actually things went relatively well until day 18 when she recovered her neutrophils and platelets. But while the patient was recovering well, unfortunately, at day 20, she had reported abdominal pain, especially on the right side. She also had 5% weight gain despite diuretics And most importantly, she had her liver enzymes increasing four times than normal while having interestingly normal bilirubin levels. At this stage, we immediately suspected VOD and we started defibrotide. Ten days later, actually, the patient was feeling better and the VOD symptoms started to improve. And by day 47, actually, we had a complete resolution of the VOD. So this clinical case allows me to discuss with you some key questions when it comes to the management of uh, these patients. First question is, what are the important risk factors for VOD? When we look to transplant-related factors, we know that the use of unrelated donors, mismatched donors, but also the use of fully malablative conditioning, especially with oral busulfan, uh, are all risk factors. This patient didn't have these risk factors. On the other hand, there are patient and disease-related factors, and she had clearly an advanced disease, highly refractory disease. But also when you look to the hepatic-related factors, she had an abdominal irradiation. She has also received brentuximab. Also, brentuximab is not recognized as a risk factor for VOD. Obviously, this is part of these antibody drug conjugates like gemtuzumab or inutuzumab, which are recognized as risk factors for VOD. Now it's your turn to answer the next challenge question on the risk factors for VOD. Thank you for joining me. Please stay tuned for the next episode. Hi. I'm Mohamed Moti from the Sorbonne University and St. Antoine Hospital in Paris, in France. And in this episode, I'll discuss the prevention approaches for VOD, but also uh, the appearance and evolution of symptoms and the diagnosis of hepatic VOD. So the next question is, how to best prevent high-risk VOD? Actually, there are non-pharmacological approaches to prevent and alleviate VOD risk factors. This is about, for instance, optimizing the conditioning regimen or consider even delaying the transplant when feasible according to the disease status until resolution or treatment of certain feature. For instance, in our 40-year-old patient, we have used a reduced-in-density conditioning regimen. Avoiding drugs like sirolimus can also reduce the risk of VOD. Therefore, our patient received cyclosporin alone, a calcineurin inhibitor. Obviously, some patient and some patient-related and hepatic risk factors are often impossible to reverse. However, it's always worth considering. From a pharmacologic standpoint, the use of ursodeoxolic acid for VOD prevention is recommended based on data from prospective randomized trials, including also the latest international position statement recommendation.
Here I'd like to draw your attention to the fact that many compounds were tested, but actually none of them is recommended. For example, low-dose heparin has been previously used for VOD prophylaxis. However, a large meta-analysis reported that the use of heparin prophylaxis wasn't associated with a significant decrease in the risk of VOD. Other agents have been evaluated for VOD prophylaxis as well. However, none of these agents showed efficacy for VOD prevention, and some were even associated with severe side effects. So the next question when you suspect VOD is about which diagnostic criteria should be used. And here, we're talking about an adult patient where we would like to diagnose VOD very quickly. And I think today, the well-established EBMT criteria are the one to be used. And this is about having a classical VOD occurring within the first 21 days after transplant, having eventually a bilirubin over two milligram per deciliter and two of the following criteria, painful hepatomegaly, weight gain over 5% and ascited. And actually, this patient fits indeed within the classical VOD criteria. Although the bilirubin was not elevated, but we had high liver enzymes. And on one hand, she had painful hepatomegaly, but she had also weight gain. Obviously, as mentioned, uh, the bilirubin didn't increase, but she had this high and significant liver enzyme abnormalities. And you can appreciate the complexity of this uh, disease. Obviously, we have also the late onset VOD occurring beyond day 21. And we rely on the same classical VOD criteria here. Or if you have a histologically proven VOD, but also if you have two or more of the following criteria, like increase in bilirubin, painful hepatomegaly, weight gain, ascites, but also hemodynamic and or ultrasound evidence of VOD. Based on all this, now I would kindly ask you to consider and answer the following challenge question. And now, please stay tuned for the final episode. Hi! I'm Mohamed Moti from the Sorbonne University and St. Antoine Hospital in Paris in France. In this episode, I'll discuss with you the severity grading and the treatment options for VOD. So, once the diagnosis is suspected, that should bring you to establish the severity grading. And based on the EBMT criteria, VOD is graded in four stages of severity, mild, moderate, severe, and very severe when the patient has a multi-organ dysfunction or failure, based on five parameters to be used. Time since first clinical manifestation of VOD, bilirubin level and kinetics, transaminase level, weight gain, and last but not least, renal function. Patient would belong to the category that fulfills two or more criteria. So if your patient has a bilirubin level between 3 and 5, transaminase between 2 and 5, 
weight increase around 7%, for instance, and a normal renal function, VOD, would be classified as moderate. If the patient fulfills two or more criteria in two different categories, this patient must be classified in the most severe category because this is a very severe complication and you would like to be on the safe side, of course. Also, it's important to remember that in the presence of two or more risk factors, patients are classified in the upper grade. For instance, we discussed the risk factors earlier. If they are receiving a maloablative conditioning regimen, if patients have received prior abdominal irradiation, just two examples, then obviously these are important risk factors. Other risk factors include, for instance, gemtuzumab or inotuzumab if they were treated for an acute myeloid leukemia or acute lymphoid leukemia. And in that case, they should be in the upper grade. And usually, patients with multi-organ dysfunction are always very severe. So once you have established the diagnosis and severity, then the question is about the treatment of these patients. Defibrotide is the only agent with proven efficacy and is currently approved for the treatment for severe, very severe VOD. Its precise mechanism of action is starting to be known and it involves two distinguent, distinguent elements. The protection of endothelial cells, but also the restoration of the thrombotic fibronolytic balance. And the approval of defibrotide relied on phase 3 trial published in blood in 2016. But also we have a lot of experience from registry-based data. Several hundreds of patients worldwide actually have already received defibrotide. And all of these data could confirm the benefit of this drug in improving the response of VOD, but also the survival of the patient at day 100 after transplant. More recently, we have the prospective open-label single-arm study TIND study in the U.S., which included more than a 1,000 patients. And one key message I'd like to draw your attention to from this study is the impact of initiation timing of defibrotide on survival. Early initiation of di after diagnosis is always associated with higher day 100 survival. And optimal outcomes require early diagnosis and prompt effective treatment initiation. And therefore, severity criteria monitoring should be strictly applied in those mild patients to allow immediate treatment initiation in case of deterioration. And that is exactly what we did in this patient, where the treatment was immediately started and her symptoms have started around day 20. And by day 22, she was already receiving the treatment and that has secured, in my opinion, the positive outcome. And of course, when it comes to treatment, we should not forget the importance of supportive care measures that are always highly recommended. 
discontinuation of any potential hepatotoxic drugs is required. Collaboration with the ICU colleagues to maintain patient nutrition and well-being is crucial. Whatever supportive oxygen, dialysis, cautious fluid and sodium balance, but also pain management are also required. And you have to treat until resolution of all VOD symptoms. Then closely, of course, monitor for recurrence. And here is a challenge question for you to answer. So in conclusion, veno-occlusive disease is a potentially life-threatening complication that can develop after hematopoietic cell transplantation. While VOD may resolve within few weeks in the majority of patients with mild to moderate disease, the most severe forms result in multi-organ dysfunction, and they are associated with a high mortality rate, over 80%. Therefore, careful surveillance may allow early detection of VOD, and if you are vigilant for the diagnosis and for the symptoms, it can be predicted, especially if you use the EBMT severity grading criteria, that can be very helpful to aid in differential diagnosis and rapid initiation of the treatment, which would avoid the catastrophic outcome. And that's all about rapid and early intervention. Thank you very much for your kind attention. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.